Welcome to the Power Podcast and our 2020 theme, Power Perspective. This is your host, Malia Warner. On this podcast, we discuss ways to change your life by seeing things in a new way. Today is episode 62, Spiritual Encounters. Hi, friends, and welcome. How are you doing? What a week it has been. This past Monday, March 16th, the cover headline on the Wall Street Journal read, Americans hit pause button on life. So like many of you out here in Utah, this week has been our first week of shutdown, coronavirus quarantine, the schools are all closed, everything's gone online, all extracurricular activities have been stopped. Then to top it off, on Wednesday here in Salt Lake City, we had an earthquake, seven o'clock in the morning, getting ready for the day. And I hear a sound that sounds like an awfully big construction truck that's about ready to drive through my bathroom and the shaking started and I grabbed the sink to keep my balance. And my husband and I just look at each other and said, that had to be an earthquake. So I immediately went downstairs. All my boys sleep in the basement. I said, grab shoes and get upstairs. And so the earthquake hit out west of Salt Lake, uh, it did damage to the Salt Lake Airport. It closed the Salt Lake Airport for the morning, uh, I think with some broken water lines. And I heard of someone who was flying, supposed to land in Salt Lake, and their plane got diverted to Seattle. And all I could think of was, what kind of a day are you having if you can't land in Salt Lake because of an earthquake and you're being diverted to Seattle, which at the time was the epicenter for the United States of America, the coronavirus. Truly, you just can't make this stuff up, can you? Does it just all feel so surreal? And today's podcast topic is just a perfect lineup of a culmination of all of these events. I think it's a great topic. It's very interesting. I hope that it's of interest to you. We're talking today about spiritual encounters. So in the article in the Wall Street Journal, Americans hit pause button on life. The first sentence is said, America has begun to shut itself down. In a matter of days, the coronavirus pandemic has reshaped American society, unmooring people from the routines and activities. When I hear shutting down, I think of shutting down a computer. And why do we shut down a computer? What does it do when we shut down and reboot? Well, it clears the memory. Shutting down a computer closes all of the processes that were open and clears the RAM, the random access memory. That's the short-term memory designed to make a computer run faster, to run current programs so that the CPU doesn't have to take time digging into the deep archives of the hard drive. And sometimes we get so many programs running on our RAM, on our random access memory, on our short-term memory, that we need to completely shut down so that we can start all over choosing the most important programs. This also reminds me of the recommended way to clean out a room or clean out a closet. Cleaning experts will tell you that the most efficient way to clean is to get everything out, just empty the closet completely and then only put back in the things that you really want to be there, the things that you really use on a daily basis, and to not fill your closets and fill your space with things that 
you aren't using. And it feels like this is what's happening around our country and around the world. Everything is getting shut down. We're completely clearing our RAM, our short-term memory programs. And then it kind of feels like we are going to little by little add back in those things that are most essential, that we value the most, and maybe kind of the extras will fall by the wayside. We'll realize maybe they weren't worth the time or they weren't worth the money. It's kind of a shutting down reboot in a way that I don't think any of us would have ever expected to experience. In this podcast, we are all about gaining new perspective and natural disasters, natural events are definitely catalysts for opening our eyes and broadening our perspective. This week, as we were managing the ramifications of an earthquake here in Utah, my brother sent out this perfect example of a change of perspective. In 1994, a 6.7 magnitude earthquake rumbled through Los Angeles at 4.30 in the morning, and it caused a blackout. All of the power in the city went out. So when the residents of Los Angeles woke up and went outside, they saw things in the sky that they had never seen before. And in the show notes, I will link to this article from Timeline that describes how people left their houses and went outside and looked at the sky and for many of them for the first time in their life saw twinkling stars, clustered galaxies, distant planets, even a satellite or two. And they had no idea what it was. And so some people began calling 911 reporting that aliens were in the sky ready to attack Los Angeles because they had no point of reference. Their lives had been so polluted with artificial light that they'd never before been able to see the natural light of stars and the Milky Way that had been there the whole time. And as we are experiencing these social blackouts, the NBA is blacked out, March Madness is blacked out, Broadway plays have gone dark, cruises canceled, soccer games canceled, all of the activities that usually keep us hustling and bustling and going places from here to there, they're blacked out. We are experiencing a unique opening of space and time in our lives without a lot of options for filling up that time. We don't have an option maybe to go to a movie theater or to go to a play or to go to a sporting events, all of those other things that we like to do to keep ourselves busy the options aren't even on the table. Now, at the same time that all of this surreal social distancing and shutdown is occurring due to coronavirus, at the same time, members of my church are commemorating 200 years since the singular event that sparked the origins of this religion. And today I want to share with you what this unique alignment of events means to me. And let me start off first by saying, I think there is spirituality and I think there is religion. And I think it's possible for a person to be extremely religious without being very spiritual. That is, you can be really active in rituals and the practice of an organized religion without really experiencing internal transformation or connection with the divine. It's possible to do all of the religious things and be very busy doing all the things without really having any heart in it. 
I also believe it's very possible to be extremely spiritual without being particularly religious. For me, I like a combination of both. I'm not saying that's right or the best way or what people should do, not at all. Just for me, I have the right to choose and I'm grateful to live in a time where I do have the ability and opportunity to choose and practice spirituality and religion in a way that feels right to me. And for me, religion works. And again, I understand that this is not true for everyone. But for me, church works. I am a church girl. I love my religion. I feel like the organization of religion and the activities and the rituals help me to connect spiritually to my higher power and help me to be less self-centered and have opportunities to reach outside myself and serve other people more and also worship in a community. Anyway, a lot of reasons. But the point of saying all this is that I believe there is a difference between spirituality and religion. And although I'm going to share a story of my religion today, the purpose is not for conversion, but for conversation. I like learning about other religions, especially their origin story, the origins of Buddhism and Taoism, etc. And my religion has a very unique origin story that is exactly 200 years old right now. So if you have ever wanted to hear the origin story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'm your girl. I'm a lifelong member of the church. My family has been members of the church for generations since the early beginnings. And today I'm going to tell the story of Joseph Smith's first vision, the spiritual encounter, which ultimately led to the organization of the church, though he didn't know it at the time. And the purpose of this is not to convert or persuade. I'm just going to tell the story and what it means for me, what perspective and meaning I draw from it in my personal life, in my quest for spirituality and trying to connect with my higher power and with the greater intelligence and energy of the universe. So in the early 1800s, in the Eastern United States, the state of New York, there were a lot of people immigrating around and there were a lot of farmers and families moving to New York because of the construction of the Erie Canal. And it was giving farmers and merchants an opportunity to sell their goods beyond their own local communities. And so there are a lot of new people coming in, a lot of influx. The city of Buffalo at that time was not a major city, but these events and these immigrations were leading it to become a major city. And with this wave of modern thinking and modern ways of doing business, there was also a lot of exploration about well, maybe we don't have to practice religion in the same way that it's always been practiced in the past. The United States was founded on very Puritan, very Quaker religion, and it was very formal. You go to church and the minister or the preacher is someone who has gone to a university, you know, been educated in theology. And people were much more exploring, well, maybe anyone can be a preacher. And so there were a lot of campfire revivals and outdoor meetings that were being held and preachers that weren't educated in a school of theology. And there was a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz about being saved and how you could be saved and how you could ensure your eternal salvation. 
And Joseph Smith's family was very active in this. He came from a very religious Bible reading family, and they visited a lot of these different revival camps and the different organizations that were forming. And he had a lot of questions. He really felt as a 14 year old boy, the urgency of wanting to ensure the salvation of his soul. And for Joseph, it felt like there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of difference of opinion between the different groups about how to be saved. And I don't want to go into the background a ton, but what it boils down to is that at 14 years old, this farm boy had a question about how he could ensure the eternal salvation of his own soul. And then he was concerned for his family as well. And he'd heard at these revivals, he'd read in the Bible, you know, ask and ye shall receive. If anyone lacks wisdom, they can ask of God. He had a question and he determined that he was going to go right to the source. And he wanted a quiet place where he could be alone. And he knew the perfect place because he had been out chopping down some trees for the farm and he'd left his axe. So he knew this perfect, peaceful grove of trees. And that's where he went. And that's where he determined that he was going to pray. This story has always had a big impact on me. I've heard it all of my life growing up. And the message that I took away from it is that anyone at any time could go directly to the source to get answers to questions. You didn't have to go through a minister or any kind of a church leader. You didn't have to study in a seminary to be worthy to approach God. That anyone of any age of any education means of life has the right and ability to ask God a question and to receive an answer. And in my life, I've asked a lot of things. Mostly I've asked for help to do things that I lacked ability or knowledge to do on my own. I've asked for help to find lost contact lenses and lost keys. I've asked for help to know what to say to people. I've never really asked for big things like, you know, the mysteries of the universe. For me, God is a very practical God interested in the minutia of my life. Nothing is too big or too small, but I find that it's mostly the small stuff that I tend to need help with, like inspiration, how to soothe a colicky infant in the night, or being able to find a good piano teacher for my child. And probably the most influential thing in my life that has given me the perspective that I can do this, that I can ask God for any of those things, is this story from Joseph Smith that as a 14-year-old boy, he did this. And I am a big believer in prayer. Prayer is powerful. I know prayers are answered, not always in the way that I want them to be, but I know that they're answered. And I feel that there is a higher power, a divine intelligence in the universe who is uniquely interested in me. And one of the reasons I feel this is from Joseph Smith's experience when he goes into the grove and he kneels down and he says that it's the first time that he's ever tried to pray out loud. And I can really relate to this because I'm an in my head prayer. I don't very often pray vocally except, you know, saying a prayer for the food or uh, a prayer for a meeting in a group. But, but personally, times that I've tried to pray out loud, it's a very vulnerable feeling to vocally hear yourself make that official inquiry to God. 
So he said it was the first time that he'd ever tried to pray out loud. And he tried to formulate this question and that he felt like his tongue was tied, just the constriction in his mouth that he couldn't even speak. And he felt like someone was walking. He could hear like footsteps, felt like there was somebody coming and he looked around and he hopped up and he just felt like this, you know, darkness trying to stop him from asking the question. And then he just kept trying. And as he did so, then he experienced what in some of his accounts he called a pillar of fire. And um, in some accounts he calls it a pillar of light. And I can relate as a writer trying to find words to put experiences just, just the act of putting experiences into words. So it's this amazing brightness. And then in the brightness, he sees a personage. And that's all he says. He says it's a personage. And then a second personage appears. And he never says that this personage is a white bearded man, which is the common image that I grew up with, you know, that God is a is a white bearded man. And I, I think, I believe that, you know, those are also our human attempts to put the divine into words or put the divine into pictures. And I love artists and I am grateful there are artists who will create their image of Bible stories or what they think God may look like or what they think Jesus may look like. I think it's good for us as humans to try to tap in and to try to put into form how we experience the divine, how we experience spirituality. I think it's good to remember that we are limited in our ability to do this. Last summer, I had the chance to travel to South Africa to pick up my son who had been serving there as a missionary for two years. And before we left, I wanted to take some gifts that we could offer to people who would be feeding us and kind people that we would meet. And I looked and looked to find pictures of Jesus or pictures of God. And I could find pictures of Jesus with white children, with children that looked, you know, very Euro-Caucasian, very European, because that's my ancestry. You know, that's where we come from, that a lot of the art that we have comes from Europe and from the Renaissance. And there were a couple of pictures of a very white Jesus with black children, and those just didn't feel right to me either. And the reason I bring this up is because as humans, I think as we try to put our spiritual encounters into words and into art, that we're limited. We do the best that we can, but just like the Los Angeles residents in the 1994 earthquake who experienced stars for the first time and didn't know what they were, it's kind of the same for us. We don't completely have the full context or the ability to put those spiritual experiences into form. We do the best we can. And I have asked myself, can I believe in the story of the first vision and also believe that God is not a white bearded man. And I realized that yes, I can because the artistic representations that I've seen my whole life portraying God and Jesus as white bearded men, those were artistic representations by someone doing their best from their context and life experience to put that 
spiritual encounter onto paper in the form of paint and picture and image. And Joseph Smith himself didn't for many years even attempt to write the experience that he had as a 14-year-old boy. And for me, living in this modern age where everything is recorded on Facebook and Instagram, we have photo evidence and video evidence of our lives, it seems hard to imagine not having accounts or documentations of such a big event. But if you think about life in the early 1800s, paper was a premium. Families just didn't have tons of extra funds to go out and even purchase paper and journals. And they would keep records of essential things like farm records. They would have books for that. But if you think about births and marriages and deaths, those were recorded in any empty space available in the family Bible. So people didn't have access to, they didn't buy journals. And it wasn't a thing to record your personal life. You just didn't do that. You didn't put it into words. Joseph Smith hadn't even finished school. He wasn't comfortable with writing. And so the first time he ever even attempted to put his experience into words on paper was 12 years after the event. And when he made the attempt, and then several times in years later made the attempt, he lamented the fact that he was limited to words that, you know, oh, the enemy of words to, to try to be able to put that experience into form. So the words he comes up with are, you know, this brilliance of light, this brilliance of fire, and these personages within this brilliance of light, and that it was so bright that he expected that the forest would burn, but nothing caught on fire, nothing was consumed. And he said that the personages spoke to him, that they even called him by name, and that the one said to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. He described that through this encounter, he felt forgiven. And for days afterward, that he felt an immense joy and love. And from reading different accounts of this experience, I get a sense of two layers of meaning in Joseph's experience. The first being what this experience meant for him personally, that he personally felt reassured of God's love and reassured of the ability to have eternal salvation. So this sense of what the encounter meant for Joseph personally. And then a second layer of meaning how over time Joseph got an increased perspective about the significance of his very personal spiritual encounter, what significance it would have for others, particularly as he went on to experience other encounters with heavenly beings and little by little experienced this unrolling of events that led to a restored book of scripture in the Book of Mormon and the organization of a church, none of which were things that he knew about at the time of this first encounter or that he would have even predicted. So today the church refers to this spiritual encounter as the first vision. Joseph Smith didn't call it that. It was an experience he had. He didn't call it the first vision. He didn't know that there were going to be other experiences that he would have 
later on that would make this one be, you know, the first. For him, he'd asked a question, which resulted in this overwhelming spiritual experience. And he very likely could have imagined that would have been the end. How could he have had any inkling that there would ever be a second, third, fourth encounter? The story of Joseph Smith's spiritual encounter, what we refer to as the first vision, is one of the most historically documented spiritual encounters. There are nine different recorded accounts. Four or five of them come from Joseph Smith himself, and four or five of them come from other people who heard Joseph Smith tell the story, and they wrote down what they heard him tell. And different tellings of the first vision emphasize different aspects of the experience, which makes so much sense to me. I really relate to the challenge of trying to capture a spiritual encounter with limited words. And I've experienced this recently in doing revisions for my upcoming book, Lies of the Magpie, coming out in May, shameless plug. There's a chapter toward the end of the book that tells about part of my healing journey through postpartum depression and chronic illness that I began seeing a counselor. And at one of my appointments, my counselor gave me an assignment to receive a letter from God. And when he gave me the assignment, I said, well, don't you mean to write a letter to God? And he said, no, I said it right. Receive a letter from God. And I said, well, how do you do that? Is there like a place that you can submit a request and then, you know, God will send you a letter. And I worked over it for a long time. It took a month and I came to the determination that God wasn't going to speak to me that way. Up to that point in my life, my answers from God had very much come in the form of feelings or a little inspiration or a little nudge or through other people. Much more I could see signs and evidence of God's hand in my life, but never an answer in written word in the form of a letter. And I really doubted that it would happen that way for me. And then it did. And I got a letter from God. And I have spent 10 plus years trying to put that experience into words. It should be easy, right? If God actually wrote me a letter in words, then it would be written down and I could just copy and paste it. But it wasn't that. First off, it was an encounter. And I understood meaning of the messages as though I was understanding words. But then trying to write it down, it seemed that words didn't suffice. It sounded too simplistic or too unbelievable. And then when I tried to share it, um, when I was back at another appointment and the counselor was there and my husband was there and I tried to share the experience that I'd had and the message that had come to me, and they both looked at me just really strangely. What had had such powerful significance to me and was a personal treasure for me didn't hold the great significance for them. They didn't get it. And I kind of regretted trying to share it. And so in the book, I've struggled with whether or not to mention it. And if I do mention it, then how and how to describe it. And I have written a dozen of variations of that experience, some in great detail, trying to capture the significance of the experience for me in a way readers could feel and understand. In the end, what's going into the book 
what's going to be committed to print is the best, most appropriate, most open while also protecting my personal treasure version of the experience fit for the purpose of this story, this book, and the role of this particular spiritual encounter in my healing journey. And though I've done the very best that I can, I know it's still limited. So I can relate to various recordings of Joseph Smith's experience, and I'm so grateful to him and to others who made any attempt at all to capture a spiritual experience and to try to fit it into limited human words. I want to finish today with sharing some of the perspectives, some of the takeaways that I draw from the story of Joseph Smith's spiritual encounter. I've mentioned some of them as we've gone along. For me, the number one takeaway is there is a God. I refer to this divine intelligence, this energy, this immense power of love as God. I think that there are many names that are equally insufficient to attempt to label this great power of love and intelligence. The takeaway for me is there is God. There is a higher power. And this higher power is very much aware of us as a whole and individually and is very interested in the smallest details of our life. This power, God is accessible. Anyone at any time has the opportunity and the ability to reach out to connect. For me, a big takeaway is that I don't have to sit lost in this life with unanswered questions, that I can take my questions directly to the highest power of intelligence in the universe and receive answers. And those answers will be fitting for me. Another takeaway is that I need quiet, space, and time alone. God will not barge into my life. God allows me to seek and invite. It's kind of fascinating to think what information or experience God is waiting to share when I take a minute to knock on heaven's door. How do we commune with the divine? Certainly, spiritual encounters are more likely to happen in times of quiet and solitude. It reminds me of a day, an experience I had as a 21-year-old missionary. I was living in France, and my goal at that time was to proselytize and to find converts. And we were always very engaged in this work. We would leave the apartment early in the morning and not return to our apartment until late at night. We were out talking with people on the streets and on the buses and knocking on doors. And it was a very engaging and even exhausting work. But I had this one day when my companion was very sick and we couldn't leave the apartment. And she was sound asleep in the bedroom. And I had time to myself in the office. We had a little office. We had a bedroom and a little office and a little kitchen. And it was a unique pocket of space and time for me when I was just praying and reading the scriptures and reading through my journal and writing in my journal. And I had a beautiful 
spiritual encounter that day that is still powerful and memorable to me. And I think it's fascinating that in the day-to-day grind of missionary work isn't when I had those encounters, but in the times of quiet when we took a pause from the missionary work. And this is what feels like is happening in my life. My companions, my human companions are sick or trying not to get sick. And so we are all a little isolated in our own offices, in our own rooms with this opportunity for quiet, for space, for solitude. And because of this unique alignment of social distancing and social blackout and the exact commemoration of the 200th year anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision, this has me thinking about spiritual encounters and the opportunity that we have over the next days and weeks to reconnect with our spirit, to reconnect with the divine. And for however that works for you, today I just wanted to share this story. I think it's a compelling story. I think it's an interesting story, regardless whether you're a religious person or not, or what religion you affiliate with. I do think it's an interesting story. And I just wanted to share and share some of my perspective about spirituality and connecting with the divine, connecting with our higher power. And I hope that's okay that I've shared some personal things with you. I wish you the best, my friends. I hope you are well. I wish you health. I wish you safety. I am praying, my family, we are praying as many of you are as well. I'm Malia Warner, and I will meet you back here next week with another episode of The Power Podcast. Until then, please take care. Bye-bye.